0: Hello, I'm Lisa O'Neill, and you're listening to The Matriarchitects. The Matriarchitects podcast and platform highlights changemakers who are building a culture that respects, values, and celebrates women. These individuals and their stories offer an antidote to the hard times we live in, showing us that new ways of seeing and being are not only possible, but are already here. Thanks for joining us. Let's build together. Our guest for today's episode is Julie Schwietert Calazo, the co-founder and director of Immigrant Families Together. Immigrant Families Together is a grassroots collective founded in the aftermath of the zero-tolerance immigration policy begun in 2018 that has resulted in the separation of thousands of immigrant parents and their children at the U.S.-Mexico border. Since June 2018, Immigrant Families Together has posted bond for 73 individuals and offered ongoing support in the form of legal counsel, groceries, healthcare, transportation, and more to many of these individuals and a dozen additional families. We talked about the need for women to share their proud moments and stories of achievement, about the harm and lasting impact of family separation and detention of asylum seekers on the US-Mexico border about the origin and daily work of immigrant families together, and about the need for everyone to find ways to plug into an issue that matters to them so we can work for collective change. Julie, thanks so much for being willing to talk with us today. Thank you. I'm really excited about it to join a group
1: of really interesting folks that you have interviewed for the podcast.
0: Awesome. So this podcast is exploring people, building a culture that values and celebrates women. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about where you learned ideas of the feminine and what it means to be a woman in the world, and maybe also how those ideas have evolved over time.
1: Sure. I think that's really interesting because being a woman is not just my gender identity, but it's very much central to my work and to who I am and sort of what I prioritize and value in my life. And so when I think back, I mean, I think like like many people, you know, the lessons that I learned about what it meant to be a woman came from my own mother and my grandmother. Although in some ways, You know, they conformed a lot, I think, to their respective eras and so and to I think, you know, growing up in the Catholic Church, which has very and especially then had very clear views about, you know, what being a woman did and didn't mean and what was allowed um in quotation marks to and for them. But it's really interesting because over the years I learned that my mother and my grandmother really broke some interesting barriers. And yet they never really talked about these. These were not family lore that were passed down or that were mentioned as points of pride. So one of them, for example, is my mother was the first female barber in Gainesville, Florida.
0: Really? Wow.
1: She was. (laughs) And she took that job to work Uh, her way through school, she was also the first person in her family to go to college. And that's how she paid for college was barbering. And she, um, there was like this, you know, the barber shop took out this advertisement in the local paper touting their first female barber in Gainesville and the only female barber in Gainesville at the time in Florida. And so I think about things like that. And I think, you know, I, I think it's kind of always been among the women in my family, they've done transgressive things for women of their time, interesting. but they never really talked about them. And I would say that's true on my paternal grandmother's side as well. And I think that's really interesting because <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know what it means, but you know, what does that mean that you have done these barrier breaking things and even to your own female child, you don't really talk about them. So that's something I think that I process a lot But I've certainly been, apart from them, I've been really fortunate to have so many strong female figures in my life. Certainly any number of teachers and professors and friends. And just being really fortunate to be exposed to, I think, women who, particularly in the place and time in which I grew up, which was South Carolina in the 80s, the things that they thought about and talked about were not sort of quote unquote ladylike, Mm -hmm. but they did it in a quote unquote ladylike way. Right. (laughs) I think I'm always fascinated by that legacy and, and how it maybe unconsciously plays out in my own life and work too.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. I feel like I had a conversation with my own mom the other day where she told me about this experience of being in college and, standing up for women of color in her program, I had no idea, you know, she had never expressed that to me. So I think it's interesting when those lived experiences are shared, or they're just kind of imbued, and whether we receive them anyway, or that's really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I'm absolutely fascinated by that. Like, is the not telling purposeful in some way? And if so, why? Or is it really that just like they didn't see it as something sort of extraordinary and important? But I mean, I think, we would be so much the richer if we heard those stories, right?
0: Right. And I wonder if it's also like an, a holdover, like an acculturation modesty, right? We're not supposed to tell about. Absolutely. But we have yes. to because, yes. <laughs> because men are, are out there, you know, shouting. So we need to share. Yeah. And now that you're talking about it,
1: you know, I'm thinking about the fact that my uh, mother-in-law who died last January in at, in her 90s, who lived in Cuba, it was something similar, you know, one day, a couple of years ago, when we knew she wouldn't be around for so much longer, I sat down with her and I recorded her and I said, I want, you know, I would ask her all these really very specific questions. And she just kept saying over and over, why are you asking me this? This is so silly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, why do you want to know about this? You know, it was, and I just thought, because these stories are important. And I want to know them. I want to hold on to them. But I also want to be able to share them with my kids. You know, I mean, this is like who you come from and shapes who you are. If you have access to those stories. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does what you've just talked about inform the way that you parent all of your kids, but particularly your daughters? Sure.
1: I think one of the answers It's certainly not the only answer. But one of the answers is that I do try to recover some of those stories, not necessarily from the women in my family, but the stories of women who are overlooked, particularly women of color, which I think for the context of my family is especially important because my children are biracial and bicultural. So making sure that in what we're reading in what we're seeing and what we're listening to in terms of music and the stories that I read to them at night, you know, that they're seeing representations of strong women who have clear beliefs, who, you know, have done great things, who've overcome challenges. So I think being really specific and purposeful about, you know, how I position and privilege those stories over the stories that I think culturally still, you know, it's interesting because my kids are in public school in New York and you would think that maybe they would be exposed to more progressive stories, more modern, you might say, stories. Mm -hmm. We went to a fundraiser the other night at a bookstore where the teachers at the school had drawn up these summer book lists, these recommended reading lists for summer, and we were encouraged to buy them. And I just was like flipping through the bins and thinking, these are not exciting books. (laughs) yeah, not exciting (laughs) stories. These are not stories that are representative of what I want to be teaching my kids about. And so I said, well, you know, forget these lists. I'm going to <laughs> You know, <laughs> found all these great books um, that I think are way more representative of, mm-hmm. of the world that I hope that I am helping to build and also the world that I want them to live in.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're the co founder of Immigrant Families Together. And I'm wondering if you could tell a bit of the origin story of immigrant families together.
1: Sure. So almost exactly one year ago, I was listening to our NPR station here in New York. And just, I think like so many people hearing the news of what was happening at the border in terms of family separation and putting kids in cages and putting people in holding pens where they were given a thin mylar blanket to sleep underneath and i just was horrified and thought like anybody else who you know has any sense of humanity what can i do about this it i mean i think as with many big social problems, it kind of felt like something amorphous, and like how does one individual sort of wrap their mind and their heart and their hands around this and do something that's concrete and meaningful? Right. And I just listened with a growing sense of dread to this news every single day and thought like nobody is stopping this. And I certainly didn't think that I could stop it. But when I heard an attorney who was interviewed by our local NPR affiliate say, look, I have this client who's in detention in Arizona, who is separated from her three kids. The three kids are at a foster care facility in New York. The only thing that stands between her and her kids is paying her bond and getting from Arizona to New York. As soon as I heard him, I thought, ah, okay, this is really the concrete thing. This is the point of entry. Mm-hmm. This is something that could tangibly be done to raise the money for this person's bond because she doesn't have it. Almost nobody when they get to the US is going to have any money, nor will their families back in their home countries if they ever had any in the first place because they've spent most of their money on on getting here. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, then there's the process of getting her across the United States. Like that's something that I think feels doable. And I heard that on June 21st, which was I think a Thursday uh, afternoon. And the following Monday, I called the attorney over the weekend. I sort of thought about what I wanted to do. And I talked with my husband about it and I talked with some friends about it because that weekend, some friends of ours were hosting a collections drive for the kids Mm -hmm. who were in the foster care centers. Mm -hmm. And while we were sitting, you know, we were sitting in her house and we were taking donations all day and the house was just, the living room was filling up with toys and diapers and bottles and formula and all of this stuff. And it was clear that people wanted to do something. Right. I looked at the friends as we were sitting on the porch and we were grilling and, you know, talking. And I said, you know, I've got this like really crazy idea that I heard this, you know, attorney on the radio. And I think that among all of us who are so angry about this, we could raise the money to get this woman out of detention and get her to New York. And at the time I didn't know how much the bond would be, but I sort of was asking them like, what do you think about this? Like, do you think that we could do this? And they thought, "Mm, yeah, this, I think we could do this. And I said to Francisco, it's like, you know, look, my husband, I said, to me, it's also not just about getting her out and getting her here. This is a long process. Right. right?" And at the time I didn't know all the particulars of that process, but I did have the sense that she, the mother and the family would need ongoing support because you can't work for a very long time. And so how, especially in a city like New York, which is really expensive, if you have three kids and you don't know anybody and you don't know sort of how to find an apartment here, which is kind of an art and a science, yeah. <laughs> um, how would you support yourself as you're going through the asylum-seeking process? And I thought, I'm a former social worker. This is not just about us raising money and feeling good and getting somebody back with our kids. It's really about, can we also create a community of people who are willing to say, we're your support crew, right? We're your support team. And we're in this for the long haul. And we're going to accompany you as you go through the asylum seeking process. Mm -hmm. And so the following Monday, I called the attorney and I said, listen, I heard you on the radio. And I really think that I could harness the power of rageful mothers, especially rageful people, period, but especially rageful mothers to raise the money for your client's bond and get her here and to continue to provide support for her is out of interest. And he just started laughing. And he said, of course, it would be of interest. She has no options. Mm. And so we started talking about that. And I said, "Well, would it be okay if we could go ahead and set up a crowdfunding campaign? And he said, yes. And within hours, we had raised thousands of dollars, you know, Mm -hmm. and we found out the next day that her bond was $7,500. And we had, you know, raised that money very quickly. And so we got her out. But I think my plan was never to do that again. And again, I, I don't think I had thought that far. But very quickly, it became clear that the amount of donations, both in terms of quantity of money, and in terms of quantity of people who were donating was such that we could keep doing the same thing. We could keep posting bonds for women who have been separated from their kids because of the zero tolerance policy and get them back with their kids and provide ongoing support. And so as of yesterday, we have posted 74 bonds, I think now, wow. which totals, I haven't totaled it up actually lately, but it's almost three quarters of a million dollars wow. um, in bonds alone. Wow.
0: You know, we're friends on Facebook, and I remember when this was first starting, and I remember you posting about what if this could be a template that people could use? You know, what if we could do this and figure out how to do this in terms of how to immediately assist people, right? But I also imagine you didn't anticipate how big this would become. Oh, absolutely not. In
1: no way. And initially, you're right. We were even thinking about, can we create a replication guidebook of sorts, right? Which we could just pass off to some other person and say, okay, this is how we did it. Now you go do it. Right. (laughs) Number one, we just found like this took off so hard and so fast that we never really had the space (laughs) to slow down and pull that together. But also literally every day as we were learning so much more about this process, we also realized how fraught that could become Mm -hmm. not that we were somehow better equipped than anybody else to do it but that there are think i think there are so many things that we've learned that enthusiasm alone and for example you know we had hundreds of people contact us and say i have a free bed or i have a free bedroom and i'd love to host somebody and as we sort of got Deeper and deeper into this, we just learned, as you do with anything right right um through the experience of it, that there are many other things that had to be taken into consideration, both for a family's safety and their the likelihood that they would have a favorable asylum outcome, but also for the longevity of a volunteer's commitment, because I think again, when there's something that's just so outrageous and heinous as this policy was and as it continues to be, even though it's not officially in effect anymore there's not often there's sort of that goodwill impulse is it will only take you so far right? right and then i think when you for example are exposed to the immense amounts of trauma that people are processing you know your spare bedroom is not enough to contain that mm-hmm. if you don't also have access to appropriate mental health supports just as one example and so you know the commitment that somebody's making when they take somebody on in this kind of supportive role. It varies in what it entails, but you know, if you're becoming a full-on sponsor for somebody, for example, you're actually legally there are legal implications for that. You are legally every time I sign a bond, I'm legally responsible for that person to show up to court. So, um I think it just became something that also felt like uh, maybe um let other people figure out where to slot themselves within this Project and maybe that the replication guide wasn't the greatest idea as we had thought it might be at the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about Jenny Gonzalez, who's who was the first woman that you bonded out, received a ton of attention. I am based in Arizona, so wrote a story about it, and other people wrote about it. I'm wondering if you could talk about that process, but then what happened after that in terms of what it meant to be connected with other women through her, you know, that were facing similar circumstances.
1: Yeah. You know we keep saying? She's really the hero um, of this story and also the first domino, if you will, because what happened was when she came out of detention, she had done two things. One, she had passed along her attorney's phone number to many other women who were in detention with her. And that sort of set off this avalanche of phone calls to him. And he was able to get information about many, many more women whom we posted bond for. So I would say maybe I'm just sort of guessing off the top of my head, but I would say the first eight to 10 people for whom we posted bond were all people that Jenny had put in touch with her attorney. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that when she came out, she had somehow committed to memory the mm-hmm. names, the alien numbers, the the number of children, the countries of origin, ages of children, locations of children of so many other women with whom she was detained. Wow. And wow. she passed that information along to the attorney and to us. And so from there it really became just this matching up of resources, right? To say, okay, here are these women and these. Alien numbers or A numbers, do they have a bond offer? Yes or no? If they do, do we have the money to pay for it right now? If yes, okay, let's make the plan to get them out and get them to where they need to be to be with their children. Let's stage up a team of support around them. And that it really just spiraled from there. And then interestingly, one of the women who was in the same facility that Jenny was in in Arizona had previously been in a detention facility in California before they transferred her. And she started passing our name and our numbers along to women that she had been detained with at the facility in California. And so we just suddenly started receiving a lot of calls directly from women who were in detention centers. And this was really a nightly routine at our home all last summer. We still get calls from detention centers, but it slowed down a little bit. But all last summer into last fall and last winter, every single night around 5 o'clock, <laughs> the phone would start ringing and it wouldn't stop ringing until after 9, 9.30 sometimes. Um, of wow. women who'd gotten our phone number and were calling to see if we could help them.
0: Wow. Wow. And I guess... That's a question I have is you do the majority of this work when you're not going to physically going to do paperwork for bonds from your apartment in Queens, where you live with your husband and your kids. And having visited last fall at any given moment, you're cooking, you're helping kids with homework. When I was there, there was also a mother you had helped bond out there with her sons. and. You were helping her with a form for one of their school, one of the kids' schools. And I'm wondering how it has been to live within this work, really. It's
1: been really interesting. I think it's funny because when I think back how, you know, the fact that I was in social work um, at the beginning of my career, and I think one of the challenges that I had as a social worker is it was very hard for me to leave my work at work. (laughs) Um, It was Mm -hmm. hard to turn off at the end of the day after listening to people and having a sense of what kind of support they needed that maybe our social service agency couldn't or wouldn't provide. And to really think, I really felt like I had a sense of how to maybe structure something that could be more effective for them. And so I think it's its funny now to sort of, how many years later is it? I left social work in 2000 three so like you know 16 years later be coming back to those same questions but living them from the opposite end of that of that sort of dilemma mm-hmm. spectrum right As you're right I mean there is like I'm, I don't turn off like there's no off button and I think at the same time that can be a little bit overwhelming at times but I also think it really helps me in the work understand much more profoundly and much more, I think, comprehensively, the particular challenges that folks are facing. So when we are, for example, having a family over here for dinner and and we're doing homework with somebody, we're sort of able to see what are the academic challenges that maybe they're afraid to tell us about. One of the things that we hear a lot from parents is, I didn't want to tell you about X, Y, Z because you've already done so much for us. I didn't want to burden you anymore. Or I know that you're helping so many other families like I really didn't want to have to ask for help on this particular thing. And so I think being able to sort of share moments with them that aren't just strictly business, so to speak, helps give a window into their day-to-day lives that makes the work much more effective because we're just able to see those areas where maybe we wouldn't have anticipated that there would be a need for support, but there is. And so then, you know, trying to figure out, all right, now that we see that, how do we try to support it?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the things that i've heard you do well i've heard you say is about the community of support and i think that is both the people that are alongside you helping facilitate the day-to-day work of immigrant families together but then also the concentric circles outside of that can you speak of people's having like a can-do attitude and it's easy for people to become overwhelmed with the degree of suffering in the world and particularly around what's happening with immigration issues right now. It feels saturating, even for people that aren't directly involved like you are. And so I'm wondering how you remain focused in the midst of that without falling into despair, because I'm sure that you're hearing intricacies of people's stories that are so difficult all the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I their individual stories directly of the families that we're working with. Absolutely. And then just sort of feeling also both um, out of a professional necessity at this point, but also sort of a, a good citizen perspective, like needing to really stay current on all of the news that continues to unfold around immigration policy in the U.S. And, you know, I mean, I think yesterday is a, is a really great example. There was just like literally every hour there was some piece of breaking news about some horrible new, you know, facet of Trump's immigration policy. And so I think that also is even more difficult because it's it really always does feel like we're all just sticking fingers in a dam, right? We're <laughs> um, bailing, you know, the proverbial, you know, bailing bucket. And yet, I I also see how for the families, you know, whose holes we do help plug up, how much that helps, how much it gives them the space and the safety to grow and pursue the dreams that they have for themselves here. And I think that piece is what keeps me going in the midst of so much unrelenting, unbelievably bad news. Is, is seeing those successes. So, I mean, I think this week is a, a wonderful, particularly moving example because it's the end of the school year. And so, so many of the kids whose families we're supporting have graduated or they have earned perfect attendance certificates or one received most improved for her ESL. So she got a certificate for that. And just getting these pictures from parents sharing their children's successes, I just like, okay, well, I can't stop now. <laughs> you know?
0: Right. Right.
1: You know, and I think there's, there. I mean, have there been moments where I'm just like, oh my God, like, do I really want to keep doing this? This is intense. Not but to the mention answer that like, you're
0: doing this like full time and on, on top of other work, doing your work, right?
1: Yeah. And, and having, and raising my own three kids yeah, who are young right. and I think, I think, but I think the challenge too is, is really like, it's not that I'm uniquely equipped to do this. I have been able through circumstance. Above all, to have just tapped into a particular moment and a particularly horrible policy that touched people in a way that made them want to act. And so when they saw that we were able to act quickly, concretely and effectively, many people have wanted to be a part of that. And so I think in addition to feeling a responsibility to the families, there's an immense responsibility to donors and to volunteers At the same time, I will say, I think that one of the challenges is that as this has, this meaning the organization has grown, and as it has brought on more volunteers, as the immigration crisis (laughs) provoked by our government continues to barrel on, organizationally, you know, it raises tensions, it raises criticism, people feel much freer to it's it's not sort of the feel good narrative alone anymore. It's right. also it becomes a lot more complex. And so that's a challenge in terms of time management now and inspiration and keeping going is also taking feedback and taking criticism. And also knowing like when you have to leave some of that to the side in order to just get the work done.
0: Mm-hmm. So With Immigrant Families Together, you're working daily trying to assist people in these very urgent situations and trying to reconnect with families and support them as they adjust and help them through the process of navigating their asylum cases, all of these pieces. And that work is so necessary and as you said holding back a dam in ways in all of these individual people's lives and i'm wondering what you think needs to happen on a systemic level mm. both in terms of attitudes and also policies about immigration so that this doesn't continue in the way that it's happening right now
1: apart from regime change okay. which you know we can all dream about i do think there are micro and macro structural changes that absolutely need to occur i think you know one of the interesting beautiful benefits of doing the work that we're doing right now is seeing how some people through the direct contact with the families that we support really begin to understand in a much more nuanced way the causes of migration mm-hmm. and, and the U.S.'s role in prompting those factors that lead to migration. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen certainly a lot of folks who are very progressive, very smart who maybe just, I mean, because it's not part of our sort of news landscape, or it wasn't. Or our
0: historical, or our our education in school. Absolutely. And this
1: is something I talk about a lot when I speak at events, um, is really saying part of the work that we need to be doing, when people ask me, as they always do, what can I do to help? Um, How can I do something? And I said, this is not just about responding to the zero tolerance policy. It's not just about pushing back against all of these horrible policies that are defining our time right now. It's also very much about looking at what are the other structural building blocks of our society where we need to make interventions. And education is absolutely one of them. You know, again, I see my kids come home from school with you know certain lessons and I'm like are we really still talking about Columbus Day you know mm-hmm. and Columbus is some sort of like you know hero or um, icon heroic yeah. right and i just think okay this is something this is one place that we need to work on we need to decenter the us in historical narratives we mm-hmm. need to also reckon with The harm that we have caused globally, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a way to do all of that that is age appropriate and developmentally appropriate. And certainly there are examples of teachers in schools who do this well. Unfortunately, my children are not not exposed to those um, at school. But I think that's certainly one area where we need to do a lot of work. I think the other thing is, you know, I was thinking yesterday in response to all of the horrible news stories yesterday, one of which was that Trump says he's suspending all aid to the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Hmm. And I thought, well, that that you know, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> you know, that's, that's gonna
0: really going to help this situation. Yeah, right. It's going to make a bad problem worse.
1: And then this notion of you know, if we just uh, round up families in mass and deport them, that will serve as a deterrent. Well, I think historically we can see deterrent based immigration actions have never worked right you know one of the things that i have heard repeatedly from the moms um that we support at ift you know because people always ask them well would you have come to the united states if you knew that zero tolerance policy was in effect and and that your kids would be separated from you and and a lot of the women have said well uh, i don't know you know but i never thought about it because i never heard about it we didn't know. It doesn't filter news of the US. I mean, I think this is also part of that sort of decentering the US. We're so egotistical that we think every single thing that we do and breathe is international news. And, you know, many of these moms have said to me, we had never heard about the zero tolerance policy. I mean, first of all, a lot of them don't have, you know, they're from very rural areas right. and don't have television. They don't have radio. And they, it's certainly not, you know, headline news that the U.S. government was, you know, enforcing this really confusing, really abusive policy called zero tolerance. And so, you know, I think we need to stop thinking that deterrence policies are sh- a should be An effective part of any humane immigration policy. And I think, you know, we really do need to look at if we are so concerned about mass migration, what are we doing to help at the root cause of it? What are we doing to combat climate change that is causing people to flee their countries because there's no longer work, because crops don't grow, or because there's, you know, persistent blight? What do we do to stop the flow of arms, which we facilitate constantly, to Central American countries? What kind of aid do we provide that supports electoral transparency and non-corrupt governance? And so these are all areas where I think, you know, it's, it's a tall order. I think they're very nuanced issues, and we're not such a great country when it comes to nuance. Right.
0: Right. I'm wondering what it, what do you think that the role of storytelling and art is in influencing change and in particular, and particularly in relationship to these issues. For example, I saw yesterday that someone had I I'm trying to remember what state it was in. It might have been in Oregon, but outside of the I know in New York they've been doing the chain link cages yeah. with audio from children in ICE detention centers. In Oregon, there was an artist who took bronzed baby shoes and put them within a cage and, and placed it outside of an ICE office there. And so I'm wondering what the role of art and storytelling is in motivating both short-term and long-term change.
1: Absolutely, hugely important part of what we need to be doing. I think the No Kids in Cages campaign that happened here in New York last week, although it went, it was taken down really quickly by uh, the police department, is really instrumental in keeping this issue front and center. I mean, I think so. It's so easy right now to have issue fatigue, which I think Mm -hmm. is always a challenge sort of around every issue. But I think particularly living in the Trump era when everything feels just like such a a big issue, right? It's just like, it's how do you keep paying sustained attention to something, particularly when you're not involved in it in a day to day basis? Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Or when it feels so huge that you're not even sure how to plug in, you know
1: exactly, or when it feels so remote, and so that's why I think that that's where I think art and storytelling come in because it it makes more visible the the pieces of the story that aren't visible that sort of don't get captured by news reports with art and with storytelling, you're allowed to really do deeper dives into the nuance of an individual's story and really understand in a way that you can't from a, you know, 45 second or two minute headline oriented report on the news, the contours of of this problem. I think it also art and storytelling have the potential to reach different audiences, audiences that may not consider immigration a central concern in their life or in their politics. And so when it's framed for you quite literally in a different way, I think it can be the invitation to think about immigration. It can be the invitation to have thoughts provoked about, mm, maybe this is something I want to pay closer attention to or learn more about. I think it just becomes a point of entry for folks who might otherwise consider themselves, you know, not particularly impacted or interested in this issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I read a story that recently came out about the youngest child separated from his family, who is Constantin Mutu, who was four months old. And I'm wondering, in working with families the last year, what kind of impact you've seen on children in in terms of that separation and their development and sense of security? And then, also, if you've been able to witness any healing from that um,
1: yes, so we've certainly witnessed the trauma, and i I can't help but think that what our government has done to these families has set wheels of you know intergenerational trauma into motion I think um, even with mental health services, which we try to connect as many of our families as possible with if they're interested in that. I think even with mental health counseling and support, it's immensely difficult to process um, what's happened and to make sense of it. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've heard the families that we work with talk about is how, interestingly, how jarring it is to have been treated so horrifically upon arrival to the country. And then on the flip side of that, to see this immense outpouring of support. Hmm. And and especially for those who were released toward the beginning of, of immigrant families together, they've seen that support be consistent for a year now. Right. And so they are really trying to reconcile what that means. What does it mean to have really experienced the worst and the best? Of humanity and of this country in a very short amount of time, you know, and so I've been talking with one of the moms lately. We were really reflecting on you know having known each other for a year now and and going back to those first moments of being here in New York and what she remembered about that and what it was like and she said, "You know, I said, what was it like the first night that the kids were back with you? like what did you do? How did you feel? How did you feel the next morning when you got up after not having seen them for?" almost 90 days and then suddenly being with them and she said you know it was just really the strangest feeling because here's this thing that you've wanted so desperately for so long and then it's suddenly there and and you don't know how to feel you don't know what to do you mm-hmm. also know that as eager as you are to pick up and move on with your life that there are things that have happened to you and your children that have changed you irreparably and so
0: on a cellular level on a cellular yeah.
1: level yes And so how do you, I mean, I'm amazed at, I'm amazed at the mothers who have come out of the experience of detention and have brought their children back into their lives who are able to sort of compartmentalize their own trauma and really be there for their kids to process their grief and their anger and their confusion their anxiety because so many kids now come out, and they're they're very anxious about being separated again they're anxious they were anxious to go to school you know um, about a month and a half ago, we facilitated the reunification of an older brother and his younger brother, the older brother is the guardian, and they came over to my home after they left the foster care facility upon the child's release. And the boy walked in the door and he just immediately started crying. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm afraid that I'm going to get like, this is a new house that they're taking me to. And this is where I'm going to stay now. And I'm still not going to be with my brother. And I just thought, what have we done? What have we done? And to watch a parent who has so much grief and anger of their own to process, just set that aside to be able to be present for kids who in some ways have become unrecognizable to them, I think is, must be just, you know, a challenge that's really difficult uh, to comprehend. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was reading a quote that Francisco, your husband had said, that really spoke to me not in just in relationship to this issue. And it says, you don't have to wait for the government to do what you are socially responsible to do. And that makes me think about this work in the context and the legacy of of so many other instances of social injustice, both within this country and outside of it, you know, in terms of the idea of not waiting, the idea of it's too urgent, the idea of this is impacting generations of people and that we have a sense of social responsibility. And I wonder if you might talk to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Francisco is from Cuba and I think he, you know, he was born right before the revolution. And I think that particular quote is really very deeply informed by his experience of growing up in the revolution Where the government was certainly a powerful force, but it also really looked to people to do for themselves. And so one of the things that it did was it mobilized a literacy campaign where I'm totally oversimplifying it, but. Folks from cities went out into rural areas, and you know the younger ones, like kindergartners, you know, taught pre-K age kids how to read, and first graders taught kindergartners, and so, so there was like Mm -hmm. this cumulative, really quickly effective model of literacy that I think has very deeply shaped who, Finocchio is as a person, and sort of what he believes with respect to the individual and the community's ability to have impact in a rather fast way. I just keep thinking that too, like, we're the ones that we're waiting for, like, nobody's coming to save us. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I think so much, it's it's really interesting, because we live in a participatory democracy that we like to sort of globally hold up as the greatest democracy on the planet. And I think, you know, um, how participatory is it, actually? Right. And I think often we are waiting for government to solve problems for us which very clearly is not going to happen in this administration if it ever happens at all it's not right. going to happen in this administration because it's the it's the same people who are creating the problem or at least mm-hmm. standing by and allowing it to happen on their watch and so there are de- I, I vacillate wildly between feelings of profound despair <laughs> and, and sort of, you know, I was talking with a rabbi who's been incredibly active in this work as well the other day. And we were saying, you know, OK, we really feel like we're now entering an extremely important, dangerous moment. You know, how can we sort of wake more people up or sort of mobilize more people? And I said, you know, on the one hand, there are days where I wake up and I'm like, oh, why, why aren't more people like engaging with this? Like, why are more people not sort of figuring out where to step in and, and do something? And I don't mean do something just with respect to immigration. I mean, with respect to all of the the crises that we're dealing with right now. And on the other hand, I think, you know, it's very exciting to see how people are engaging. I mean, I see, you know, the secretary and treasurer of IFT, for example, is an older woman who's a lifelong Republican who lives in the Midwest. She's Hmm. been the most engaged, consistent, reliable volunteer that we've had, one of the most consistent, reliable volunteers. And she's found her place, right? And she's stuck to it. And I know, you know, she went to a protest for the first time, and it was a huge deal for her. And I think, you know, to see, to be witness to somebody awakening parts of themselves or or stretching maybe a muscle that they never knew existed is extremely exciting. And I think, you know, the rabbi and I were just saying it's really hard to wait for people to sort of find that muscle and stretch it, or or in our own sort of looking at it and, and from our own perspectives, what do we do to help people, to invite them to stretch it in a way that's simultaneously welcoming and not off-putting, but also pushes them maybe a little bit or challenges them because we feel like we don't have a whole lot of time, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking about what you said about mothers from the beginning of Immigrant Families Together's work last year and talking about experiencing this brutality and this complete lack of compassion and humanity, and then experiencing this attitude of welcoming and generosity and I imagine that that must be that that feeling of generosity must also be part of this in terms of how many people have donated in addition their time, their resources to be able to make this work happen. I read that quote from Felix, who donated money from his book sale and said, I hope no families get separated ever. And I'm wondering what the kind of outpouring of support, even from people that maybe aren't daily involved in this process has been like.
1: Um, Yeah, it's been extraordinary. It's incredibly humbling and moving to witness everything from comments that people send when they make a GoFundMe donation about, you know, in the beginning, for example, all of our GoFundMe campaigns were named after the mother for whom we were raising money. And so somebody would donate money just because their grandmother, you know, shared that name or, you know, because their grandmother was an immigrant. We've received really moving stories. Uh, One donor's grandparents were in a Japanese internment camp. Certainly many, many, many uh, descendants of Holocaust survivors or victims of the Holocaust. And uh, so those stories, There are also stories of there was a woman who made a donation and said, this is the last three dollars that I have for my Social Security check. I wish I could give you more. Hmm. And so I think those stories just are also something that keep me going because I think this person really realizes their individual agency, right? Mm -hmm. They may wish that they could do more, but they're still doing something. The wish to do more doesn't cancel out the desire to do what they can at this moment. I'm also so, I don't even know what the right word is, astonished. I mean, grateful, absolutely, but utterly astonished that the core group of volunteers that we started with last June, the majority of whom are mothers and have full-time jobs and are really accomplished in, in their work and in their lives, are still around and engaged with us all day, every day. And they're just pulling off amazing feats. Three uh, of our volunteers, Megan Finn, Courtney Sullivan, and Michaela Coedo, have been working for the past several months on the case of an of a indigenous woman from Guatemala who only speaks the indigenous language, K'iche'. And um, it's a really powerful story about the work that we do because the former cellmate of this woman um, contacted us via Facebook. And I think at any given moment sort of along the, the timeline of this story, somebody could have said, I just don't have time to deal with this. Or it doesn't kind of quite neatly fall within the purview of the work that we do, so we're just going to pass. This woman had been detained, had never had language interpretation services at any of her court hearings. And we decided to take this case on and to provide legal counsel at cost, to provide language translation at cost. We actually had somebody from Tucson, <laughs> where you are, go, uh, we would fly her from Tucson to Texas to do this, to do the interpretation in the court hearings. And the women, Megan Courtney and Michaela, who have been working so hard on this case on a daily basis, I just think at any given moment, any of them could have said, you know what? I have a baby. Or in Megan's case, she's a director of a theater. Like, I've got to get this show on stage. Michaela is a mom, too. You know, I've got two kids who are graduating from school or whatever. I I think at any given point, anybody's very legitimate personal and family needs could have just taken precedence. They could have said, I just can't do this. Mm-hmm. And really, the core group of volunteers at IFT who were around at the beginning are still around and still digging their heels in every day. And I'm just astonished by that because none of them are paid. <laughs> uh, I'm not paid either, and neither is philosophy school, but none of them are paid. And so there's this is—it it is really and truly a labor of love and of outrage, right? And of a sense of responsibility mm-hmm. and the use of privilege, really.
0: Mm -hmm. how do you access levity and joy in the midst of doing this work? And also how do you witness levity and joy in the families that you're, that you're in relationship with?
1: Um, Those are great questions. So I'm married to somebody who's really funny and I think that is (laughs) extremely helpful. And it's also helpful to have young kids who are just delightful and they're always looking for the funny and they like to make Their overly serious mother laugh. So Mm -hmm. I think family is, is just so important in maintaining that joy, but also from the families that we support and the ones that I have direct contact with, I think, you know, their ability to laugh at themselves sometimes, or to laugh at some of their experiences and circumstances. So things like, you know, mishaps with the subway system, or you know, like ordering food and getting something totally different than what you think, and just sort of the the standard um, stories of acculturation and adjustment that any immigrant experiences when they move to a new awesome. country um, awesome. that you know here are all these really, really terrible things that happen, but there are also these moments of you know of humor and of learning, and I think when you know when we share in those and we can laugh about those together, it, there are these much needed <laughs> moments of Normality, right? Of, of also sort of like um, understanding that it's a very full spectrum experience in terms of emotions.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 During Women's History Month, you were honored by New York State Assemblymember Avela Simotas and Congressmember Carolyn Maloney. And then you recently received a 2019 Women of Distinction Award from New York State Senator. Michael Gianaris. And I know you're really quick to recognize that you're doing this work in collaboration. But I'm wondering what it meant to receive those honors and also what the term woman of distinction means to you.
1: So it's really funny that you asked that question, because when Senator Gianaris first let me know that I was going to be receiving the award, uh, I think that he wrote in an email or he said to me, you know, I know that you really don't want to stop the work that you're doing to come to Albany to accept this award. He's like, I know <laughs> it's like you just want to keep doing the work. Uh, but I think what the awards have meant to me are the ability to leverage them. <laughs> and the same mm-hmm. is true of media coverage. So I think, you know, is Senator Gianaris is right. I'd much rather just be doing the work. I would much rather not be the person who is interviewed frequently. I mean, I enjoy interviews and I enjoy going to speak to groups. But I think, you know, I, I often feel uncomfortable with the fact that I'm sort of the, the figurehead for the group when there are all of these amazing people who have really put in as much work as I have and who, who also have incredible stories to share. But I understand that's also how things work, right? And I also understand that the power of awards is the conference upon you of a recognition that something that you're doing is deemed important and that then that sort of becomes leverage for other things that are necessary for the work that you're doing. So for example, It is very useful when applying for grants or fellowships. It allows us to gain visibility that in turn allows us to have a place at tables where we are influencing policies. So as one example, we last September became aware that one of the foster care facilities that has a number of facilities in Texas was really strong arming families uh, who had children in these foster care facilities to pay a travel agency, a third party travel agency, money in order for their kids to be returned, and we were pretty sure that that wasn't allowed, um, or at the very least that parents should have options and not be told in this very shady manner that within you know x number of hours you have to send money via Western Union to have your kid returned to you, and it was because of reporting by Katie Vine at Texas Monthly that we were able to be a source that contributed to the exposure of this practice and i actually went to texas myself to prove that as a parent you could go to the door of the foster care facility and get your kid back once they were approved for release they didn't need to get on an airplane accompanied by a chaperone who whose ticket would also have to be paid for hmm. When the Katie Vine story came out, it allowed us to reach out to Nick Kristoff of the New York Times, who covered the reunification that I facilitated with this dad and his daughter. And that, in turn, led to the foster care facility sending out a memo the very same day to all of its staff saying, you cannot tell families that they have to use this third-party travel agency, which is basically enriching themselves off of you know this practice. And in turn, The Senate Finance Committee then called me and said, based on this reporting that we read, we'd like to know if you have other instances that are documented of this happening. And that then, in turn, resulted in the Senate Finance Committee issuing a very lengthy letter to uh, different organizations that carry out the, the foster care of separated children to let them know, you know, you're on notice, like these practices aren't to be tolerated. And we want a full accounting of not just this, but a number of other issues. Hmm. And so awards and media coverage are um, powerful for that reason, right? Because then you can say, I'm not just this random mom <laughs> from New York, who, you know, is has successfully done a few things. It's it's now here's this random mom from New York, who also, you know, was recognized by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, and so that sort of now has this amplifying power.
0: Right, right. I'm wondering if you could share some of the women who are inspiring you right now.
1: Um, There are so, so many. The, The main person who's inspiring me right now is Tiffany Caban, who is a public defender here in the county of Queens, where I live in New York. She is running for the district attorney of Queens in an election next Tuesday. Really, an outsider candidate in a field of seven candidates who are sort of part of many of them are part of the political machine lifelong politicians and she's a thirty one year old queer latina uh, who grew up in the housing projects here in Queens and who because you know of her work as a public defender, I think has a much more nuanced understanding of the power and authority of the DA's office and the harms that it has caused particularly black and brown people and immigrants in our community. And so I'm really inspired by her campaign, which like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was a completely people-powered campaign. They didn't accept any corporate donations. And she actually outraised one of the front runner candidates um, with more donations and with more money. And Mm -hmm. most of the donations were low dollar donations. Mm -hmm. And so I think you know that to me so much resonates with our work. I just always say to people, of course we're grateful for the hundred thousand dollar anonymous hundred, yeah hundred thousand dollar anonymous donor uh, who you know spearheaded a matching campaign for us last year. Of course we're grateful to Kristen Bell for her um, generous donations and to the donations of you know a number of other private philanthropists who've made large contributions. And I'm equally grateful for that woman who sent three dollars from her social security check because. It's the power of quantity, right? It's the power of quantity of people. Um, Tiffany Caban is a candidate. She's definitely a person who's inspiring me. And I think, you know, just um, looking at people like her across the country and not just in electoral politics, but people who are coming and saying, just because the system is structured this way, doesn't mean we can't consider another possibility. It doesn't mean that we can't create another possibility. There is nothing about any of the systems that we are living with. That is immutable right Mm -hmm. and immigration i think um particularly is is we can change this system we don't have to live with the system that we're living with now um and so i think i draw a lot of strength and inspiration from these women who are also under constant attack right i mean it is not a comfortable position to be in, to be somebody who challenges the status quo, because there are so many interests in maintaining it, particularly, you know, monetary interests. Mm-hmm. So I think to, right, to come and say, you know what, there's really enough for everybody if we distribute things more equitably. It's very threatening. And so I'm continuously um, draw energy from these folks who are pushing back against that narrative and saying no like what do we have to lose by trying other than other than you know the wealthiest losing a little bit of their you know privilege what do we have to lose by trying out a different system Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well I think that's all of my questions but is there anything else that feels important to articulate that I didn't ask about
1: I think the only thing is is really just, I mean, I did speak about it a little bit, but really emphasizing that idea that none of these issues occurs in a vacuum or exists in a vacuum. So, you know, if immigration isn't your jam, that's fine. Go find some other point of entry within your community where you can do the work that changes the thing that's important to you. And I think that's, you know, it can be As obvious as joining your local parent-teacher association or your local school, you know, running for school board, whatever the issue is that most resonates with you, I think don't wait for somebody else to sit around and figure it out. And you don't have to know the answers. You don't have to have a plan, but go be part of the conversation and show up. And learn as you're going along. I mean, there's so much to learn. I, there are so many things that I would have done differently with immigrant families together, knowing what I know now, right? But life doesn't work like that. <laughs> you don't live in hindsight. And so there's this great saying in Spanish, um, Aprendi caminando, like I learned to walk by walking, <laughs> you know? And so I think just go and find that place in your community where you can have your point of entry and just show up to the table and be part of that conversation.
0: Thank you so much to Julie schwietert Calazo for speaking with me, and to singer-songwriter Jillian Bissett, whose voice you hear at the beginning and end of our episode. Earlier this week, on June 25th, Tiffany Caban was considered the likely winner in her primary bid for District Attorney of Queens after leading by 1.3 percentage points. The 31-year-old former public defender said to supporters on Tuesday night. They said I was too young. They said I didn't look like a district attorney. They said we couldn't build a movement from the grassroots. They said we could not win, but we did it, y'all. I'm Lisa O'Neill. Thanks so much for joining us and listening to The Mitri Architects. You can subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your listening platform and you can support the project by sharing this episode, leaving a review, or finding the Matriarchitects on Patreon. Let's continue to build a world where people of all genders can live their fullest, most purposeful lives. See you next time.